All right, well, with that, let, let's just open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 3. We're, we're in the midst of an incredible, incredible story here about uh, the crippled man who was healed uh, through the power of Jesus Christ using Peter and John to do that. We talked about that last week, and uh, this morning we get to talk about times of refreshment and rest uh, that comes from turning from your sin uh, and embracing Jesus Christ. And uh, usually I, re- I read the whole section that we're going to go over, but uh, we will do that as we walk through it. But um, let me just pick out a couple verses that are, I want to highlight, and then I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into the, the rest of this uh, story. Look at verse 19, uh, Acts 3, verse 19 and verse 20. It says this, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And then just drop down to verse 26. It says, as God, having raised up his servant, that's Jesus, sent him to you first, here it is, to bless you by turning everyone every one of you, from your wickedness. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for, again, the the word of God that we get to to open up. We get to spend time uh, reading its truth. We get to spend time studying it, um, trying to bring understanding to it, as says in the Old Old Testament, to give the sense of what it has to say. And and to do that... um, Every week, Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide. And we need that this morning. Uh, we need help. Uh, we need to be able to take truths and, and not allow them to just rest in our head, but to move into our heart uh, to convict us, to comfort us, to challenge us, uh, and most of all, Lord, to transform us to become more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray towards that end as we study this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you remember at the beginning of chapter 3, uh, Peter and John are on their way to the temple, and they're on their way to the temple to pray. And on their way there, they encounter a lame man, uh, the, the crippled man, and who, as it says, was, was crippled from birth. He, we know him to be uh, 40 years old, and he was there and, and begging for money, as was his custom to do on a daily basis. And when Peter and John... Uh, encountered him and found him. You can see in verse uh, 6 of chapter 3, Peter says to him this, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. What the lame man wanted, he did not get, but what the lame man needed was exactly what Peter and John were able to give him, and that was Jesus Christ. In that moment when, uh, when Peter and John uh, were able to take this man by the hand, uh, in doing so, the lame man was able to rise up immediately and walk. He was able to, as it says there, to leap around. We talked about this last week. He had, he had fresh legs. I mean, he was athletic. He was ready to go. Uh, and, and at the end of all of it, he was praising God because of the, the miracle that happened through the name of Jesus Christ. It's really an incredible story. 
It's an amazing one, actually, as this would be Peter and John's first miracle that they ever did. This lame man would rise up and walk immediately. And in, in verse 10, it, it says there that they were filled with wonder and they were filled with amazement uh, as all of this had happened to them because people would, would continually walk by and see this man who was crippled uh, day after day after day, even Jesus. Uh, uh, it's not recorded, but most likely uh, walked by this man as well. And on this day, everything changed for this lame man. He was fully restored. He was, he was fully healed. And we'll look at that in verse 16. He was, he was fully brought back, able to walk, able to leap, able to praise God. Look with me then at verse 11. The story continues. It says this, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them to the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at this as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? What's happening here? I mean, you can see right away, uh, you have this man, this, this, this newly healed man. They're clinging to Peter and John. And, and maybe we, talk, we talked about this a little bit last week where he said, maybe he thought, hey, this might wear off and I need somebody to hang on to. Or, or, or it's this way that, 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 that this man clung to Peter and John because he had so much to owe Peter and John. I mean, this is his uh, new best friend. I'm not letting this guy go. In all of it, while he clung to them, it says there all the people are utterly astounded. And, and of course they were because of this incredible miracle that, that had just taken place. They're, they're amazed. You could say that they're even dumbfounded by it. And, and they all run together to this place called uh, Solomon's Portico, or, or, or you could say the Porch of Solomon. They wanted answers. They wanted to know what was going on. And, and this, this portico here of, of Solomon was this, this, this porch-like area. It had magnificent pillars. It, it supported a, a, a roof that was open on the, on the inside. So you could kind of vision these pillars kind of going around uh, the outside of it. Solomon's porch was also a place where Jesus would frequent. He, Jesus actually, actually liked going to this place. And if you remember the story in John chapter 10, uh, the story that, that really changed everything for, for the Jews and their hatred towards Jesus, because in that moment, Jesus said that, that he and the Father are one. Remember that when he said that? Then you remember what happened next? They all picked up stones and began to throw them at Jesus. That happened at Solomon's portico, at the porch there of Solomon, uh, this gathering place. And it was here that this, this large crowd who was wondering how in the world did this happen, they, they all ran together, they came to Peter and John, and they run up to them, and they want to know, hey, how did this happen? Tell me what happened, because I was over here having lunch, and now here I am, and this guy's healed. Tell me what's going on. what he says verse 12 Peter saw it saw the crowd and he addressed the people Peter was really good at taking actual real life illustrations and turning them into gospel presentations 
He just did this. Remember uh, just a, a chapter back in, in Acts chapter 2 at the, at the time of Pentecost. Remember Pentecost happens and they're, they're speaking in, in each of their own language there. And, and then what happens? Who stands up? Peter stands up. And what does he do? He gives explanation. And what does he do? He points them to Jesus Christ. All right, Peter's good at this. Well, here it is again. Peter, Peter's there with John. He, he heals this man. They all run to him, and they all, they all ask the question. And here again is this built-in illustration uh, using this he- healing. And this time, this healing would be the opportunity that Peter and John have to, to share the gospel with the crowd. And oftentimes, this is what, what miracles would do. Oftentimes, the miracle was used to validate the message. Oftentimes, the miracle was used to authenticate the message. And oftentimes, miracles were used uh, as the opportunity for people to hear the gospel. A guy by the name of William Arnault, or Arnott, depending on where you live, uh, he, he says this. He says, such works, speaking of miracles, could not convert the people. So the miracle could not convert the people. But such works then held an important place among the means of conversion. The miracles broke up the hard ground. And these faithful watchers were ready to run in and cast the living seed into the open furrow. From this timely sowing, a great harvest sprang. So the miracle was used what to kind of break up the hard heart of the ground because now they're all wondering, hey, hey, can you give, give some sort of explanation here? And Peter has a, a, a full captive audience. And then Peter answers them. And I want to show you this as we walk through the rest of this section here. I want to give you four aspects of Peter's second sermon here. Four aspects of Peter's second sermon and the first point is this, is that Peter points the crowd to the power of Christ. Peter points the crowd to the power of Christ. Look at verse 12. He says this, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have been able to make him walk? Peter says, why, why are you looking at us as if, as if we were the ones that were able to do this? Why, why are you staring at us? And, and I, I know he says this rhetorical question kind of because it's like, obviously they're staring at you. You grabbed him by the wrist and now he's leaping and walking and praising God. Of course we're looking at you. But he does this because Peter denies any credit that it was him who healed the man. He denies any glory in this moment. He's letting them know, this was not me. This was not by my power. This was not by my might. I take no glory for what just took place. Peter understood that he was just a conduit of the power of Christ within him. He was a vessel for the power of, of Christ to be, to be used. And at that moment, the power of Christ was, was used to heal this man. But Peter didn't want any credit for it. And remember who we're talking about. We're talking about the same Peter who's made a few mistaken, mistakes in his life who may have at one point taken credit for this. He, he may have been, hey, you know, yeah, I mean, God used me. Right. But he doesn't at all. 
He, he wants to be very clear from the start. Don't look at us, look to Christ. This wasn't my power, this wasn't my piety, this, this was the power of God. And he points them straight to Christ. Look at verse 13. He explains where this power came from. He says this, the power, or excuse me, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. What is he saying? He's tying back now their, their Jewish history all the way back to Abraham. He's pulling it all together for him. He's helping them understand that, hey, this Jesus is the one who's, who's of the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of our fathers. This is the Messiah. This is the one whom, whom God has, has glorified, this servant Jesus. He's, he, he's in many ways masterfully pulling their minds back to the Old Testament and saying, hey, this is the Messiah. This is Jesus. This is God's servant. In fact, in Isaiah 42.1, it says this very, very words, Behold my servant, whom I behold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And again, in Isaiah 52 Verse 13, he says, behold my servant. The servant who God glorified, and he glorified him at the cross when he would take on the, the full weight of the sins of the world. He places Jesus in a position of power. He places Jesus in a position of honor and of, and of excellence. And, and Peter says, hey guys, this wasn't my power. This is the power of the Messiah, who, by the way, is the one who comes from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and your fathers. And it says this, which leads to our second point, which is this, is that Peter then points the crowd to their denial of Christ. He shows them who Christ is. Look what it says, whom you what? whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when you had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. He says to them, you can see it there, that, that, that this Christ, this Messiah, the one whom, whom God has glorified, uh, you have delivered him over and you have denied him in the, in the presence of Pilate. He, he draws them back to that, that day there when, when, when Christ was, was denied and, and then you decided to release him. And you denied the holy and, and righteous one and and that word there for, for holy is, is the word for set apart. And, and the word for righteous there, it talks about Christ being a righteous and upright judge. He's the innocent Jesus. He's the innocent man. And 
and you delivered him over to Pilate. You denied him. In Acts 22, 14, we'll see this similar phrase here about the righteous one, talking about the Messiah, where it says, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. God gave you the Messiah. God gave you the the glorified servant Jesus. He came to humanity as a gift from God to save the world, to reconcile you back to God, to restore you, to redeem you, to save you. He came not to be served, but to serve. And what did you do? You delivered him over to be crucified. You denied him entirely. In fact, you can see these, these words, these verbs there, just, just in that phrase. You can see, what does it say? You delivered over. You denied in the presence of him. You decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one. I want you to see what this looked like. Turn over to Mark chapter 15. Verse 6. Verse 6, because this is what that looked like. That delivering over. Holy Jesus. Perfect Jesus. The righteous one. 15.6 says, now at the feast, he used to release for, for them one prisoner. For whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who are committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. Hey, Pilate, remember you released one of these guys? Yeah, it's time. Let's do it. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of the envy of the, the, the chief priests that had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. And so Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The same account in, in Luke as well is it, similarly there. They, they released, as it calls him there, the murderer Barabbas. In this incredible Tragic exchange. A murderer for the Holy One. I was thinking about this this week, and illustrations always fall short when you're talking about something like this, but what came to my mind was like the worst trades ever in Major League Baseball. <laughs> the worst trade ever. I mean, you guys are Mariners fans. You're like, yeah, I know exactly the worst trade ever that ever happened. 
NBA fans, like, I know the worst trade that ever happened. Why would anybody ever do that? Obviously, this guy is going to be better than the one we got. Right? You have this in your mind, this, this exchange that happened. And in this case, this was a tragic exchange. You just delivered over the holy and righteous one. Then it says this, twice it says this, look, look back in the text, twice it says not only did you deliver him over, but you denied him in the presence of Pilate. And, and in verse, verse 14, you, you denied the, the holy and righteous one. It means that you, you totally cast him off, you, in, you entirely rejected him, you, you, you disowned him. You left him alone to be killed. You're responsible for this denial. You said, we don't want any association with Jesus the Messiah at all. In fact, we would rather have a murderer die. Someone who murdered die, excuse me. Someone who's killed someone else. Peter even says it as clear as this. Look at verse 15. This is about as clear as you can get it in regards to this tragic exchange, this this horrible exchange, the worst trade ever. Verse 15, and you killed the author of life. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. You exchanged the Holy One for a murderer. That word there for the author of life, it could be this, the champion life or, or the source of life. You, the irony, you release the one who kills and kills the, kill the one who gives life. And it says they're the one what? The one whom God has raised from the dead The irony in all of that is the one you killed isn't even dead. He's very much alive because God raised him from the dead. And the one that you have given life is dead. And Peter, again, as we see, bold, courageous, Peter, he's not trying to flatter anybody, is he? He's not trying to win people, is he? He, he? he probably wouldn't read how to win friends and influence people. He could care less. He looked at this crowd and he goes, they need Jesus. And they need to feel the weight of what they did. There's no sugarcoating this message. You killed the author of life. Peter wants them to feel the weight of this. Peter understands this. Before there can be conversion, there must be conviction. We can't just jump to the end and say, hey, believe in Jesus without telling the people why They need to believe in Jesus. There must be conviction before a sinner can experience conversion. 
And for these people, if they were going to accept this miracle, that it came by the power of Jesus and in the name of Jesus, for, for them to accept that, then that would be to admit that Jesus is indeed the Son of God and the Messiah. And so Peter wants them to feel the weight of this. And he even says this, to this we are all witnesses. He's saying this, there's not, no, not one person here who wasn't a witness to that. We all saw it. We can all give testimony to it. When he says the word Pilate, they all know who Pilate was. When they said the exchange, they, he knows what the exchange was. They were all there. A lot of them were possibly even there chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. There's probably theirs who are, who are imploring the chief priest, hey, Pilate, let someone go. Would you go tell him to let go Barabbas and let's put the king of the Jews on the cross? They were all there. But notice this. Peter doesn't leave them without hope. He doesn't leave them just sitting there in their sin and, and in the conviction of sin. He, he doesn't just say, that's it, and he walks away. No, Peter, in verse 16 now... <coughs> And to our third point, he, he, he points the crowd now to place their faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16. He says, in his name, by, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is, what, through Jesus has given the man this perfect health and is in the presence of all of you. Peter says, listen, the answer to this is to place your faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other way to explain how this man is healed, but by faith in Jesus and for your heart to be healed, this is what you need to do. You need to place your faith in Jesus. He says it again, by, by faith in his name. If you look over in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else for what? There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's by faith. In fact, the healing here came on the grounds of faith in Jesus. He's the Messiah, that he's the healer, that based on the character and life and nature of who Jesus is and what he has done, this man was healed. It even says there that he had what? Perfect health. Wholeness. And I want to say this to you as well, and just, for, just to kind of, kind of maybe pull off to the side here for a second. This isn't about having enough faith. In fact, it doesn't even really talk about before the man was healed if the crippled had enough faith. Right? You'll hear that today from faith healers. Hey, I tried to heal you, but you didn't have enough faith. And so actually... I can heal if you have enough faith. And maybe you've heard that before. That's common amongst those who, quote unquote, have the gift of healing. This isn't even about having enough faith. In fact, it doesn't even speak about the quantity of faith. But we do know this, that Peter and John had faith. They had faith that Jesus could heal this man. And that faith was then, was then transferred into this man as this man 
when he was healed, would then place his faith in Jesus Christ. And he says there, what was his faith in? His faith in his name. His faith entirely in Jesus. And in that, this man was perfectly healed in the presence of all of you. So we must have faith, but he doesn't end there. Look at verse 17. And the fourth point is this, is that Peter points the crowd to repent and turn to Christ. In having faith, there is also coupled with, you could say on the other side of this, this coin, one side faith, the other side is what? Repentance. He says, and now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled, verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of what refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He says this, you, you acted out, look at, it, look at it, verse 17, I know that you acted in, in ignorance. Literally that means I know that you did not know. I know that you did not have information about this. I, I know that you, you lacked in knowledge. That's what ignorance is. But, but listen, ignorance is not bliss, for it leads to mistaken conduct. It, it, it was his way to say this. You did not realize the great mistake you made. And I know you acted in ignorance. But that ignorance led to a grave sin, and that grave sin was killing Jesus, the Messiah, but you're not off the hook because of that. In Acts 17.30, it says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Repent. And God, in his mercy, through Peter, he calls these people once again, even though they acted in ignorance, as what? As did also your rulers. God foretold this by the mouth of the prophets, that Christ would come and suffer. And what's the answer to that? You need to repent of that. To repent, the word means to, to change the mind. It's to, to change the mind in, in respect to sin and to turn to God. And we need to understand this in repentance as it's very, very important in repentance. It's not just an intellectual decision. It's accompanied by change that's shown in genuine acts and genuine works in the change of one's behavior. So it's not just changing your thinking. It's not just saying, yeah, yeah, that, that was wrong. It, it, it also follows with, with sorrow for sin, and then that sorrow for sin leads to repentance where you were once walking one way towards your sin, and, and you repented, and you did 180 degrees, and you turned, and you started walking to God. didn't just change your mind. You, you literally turned around in the other direction. 
I'm now walking to God. I've turned around. So when you hop on the freeway and you head north and you realize, no, I shouldn't be heading north, I should be heading south, I can't just kind of slightly turn. No, I got to get off and I got to do 180 degrees and I got to start going the way I should be going. That's repentance. And he says, repent therefore. With the new information you have. With now knowing what you did not know before. And then it says what? Turn back. Turn around. This word there, we can, we can learn most from this in the Greek word. This is what we, need, we can glean from this as we, we see this word turn back. It's this, that this is a volitional choice. This is a, a decision that one must make for themselves. You can't force it on them. The conscious choice to make a definite turn to God, changing conduct and changing the mind. And, and Peter says this is the only way. Daryl Bach says this. He says, the point is that repentance involves a reorientation of perspective. A fresh point of view when dealing with God's plan, it means to see that plan in a new way and to orient itself. And it demonstrates the fruit of repentance expresses itself concretely. Repentance expresses itself in life, especially in how one treats others. Spurgeon says this, C.H. Spurgeon says, repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, mourning over the fact that one has committed it and a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a deep and practical character that makes a person love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. Turn back refers to conversion, a turning around, a turning from, and a turning to. A turning from sin and a turning to holiness, a turning from carelessness to thought, from the world to heaven, from self to Jesus, a complete turning with the result. Here it is. The result being that your sins may be wiped out. Relationship with God is restored. Your sins are wiped out. Isaiah forty-three twenty-five says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my sake, for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. In Colossians 2.14, it says that he's, he's canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. This is amazing. This is beautiful. This is the gospel. He'll wipe out, he'll blot out it. This is what it means. It means to eliminate or destroy the evidence. Maybe some of you have sang the song, and I love tying these doctrinal truths to songs. It's, it's helpful to us at times. At least it is for me, and oftentimes I, I quote different hymns and songs for you guys. And This simple one. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And he's saying, men of Israel, this is a grace of God to you. What you now did not, what you once did not know, you now know about Jesus the Messiah, and here's the answer. Repent. The opportunity was there, and I want to say this too, that repentance, church, is not a right. Repentance is a privilege and a grace of God. And then comes two things. I want to show you two things that come from this. One is a blessing, and the other is a judgment. Look at the first, the blessing that comes from, the, from repenting. What does it say? There's times of what? There's times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord. This word for refreshing here, it means relief from the heat. Relief from the heat. As one is revived by fresh air. It means cooling or reviving. And I thought, man, this is an, e an easy illustration for me because I grew up in Fresno where it's 110 in the summers. And I would tell my mom when I'd walk out, I'd say, mom, kick down the air conditioning as low as you possibly can. And she'd say, you're crazy. We're not going to do that. We can't afford to do that. I'd say, okay, mom. But I'd want it as cold as possible because when I go outside and play and I'd get extremely hot, and some of you have been to the desert before where you get extremely hot, and then after you're, you've been outside, you're sweating and you're hot, and you walk into that nice, cool, air-conditioned room, and you're like, oh, refreshing. It feels so good. And that's what he's saying. With repentance comes Refreshing, the cooling off, the drying out, the relief and rest that comes. He says that it's going to come to you when Jesus comes. And he, here it's talking about the, the, the time of the, the millennium. In verse 21, when heaven must receive Jesus till the time of the restoring of all things that come from God that is spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. He's speaking of that time ultimately when Jesus will come back and bring ultimate relief and ultimate refreshment upon, among those who are battling and still dealing with their sin, those who are believers in Jesus Christ. But this principle still remains for us as we go to Christ for repentance. He goes on, he says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like your brothers and you shall listen to him. And whatever he tells you, look at verse 23. Everybody, look at verse 23. And it shall be that what? Every soul who does not listen to that prophet, what? Shall be destroyed from the people. Now here's the part if you don't repent. Here is the judgment. Every soul, let that sink in, church. Every soul will be responsible for this. If you do not repent and embrace Jesus Christ, there is an eternity in hell. There is judgment from God. Every soul who does not listen will be destroyed. 
judgment that will come from not repenting. And remember, he's confronting these, this crowd here. And he's laying it all on the table for them. You need to repent and turn to God. You need to embrace Jesus Christ as the Messiah. All the prophets who have spoken before them from Samuel who had come after them, they proclaimed them in these days. And it says, you are the sons of the prophets. He brings them back to their heritage and the covenant that God had made with his fathers and to Abraham. And you are the offspring of the families of the earth to be blessed. He's talking about, again, just the heritage that the Jewish people have all the way back to Abraham and the covenant that God had made with them. And he brings them to this point of decision. And he even says in verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him first to you. To do what? Why did Christ come? To bless you. He came to bless you by turning from your sin. Turning every one of you from your wickedness. And that's where it leaves us this morning. Have you turned to Christ? Have you embraced him? Have you repented of your sin? Do you do you need to repent this morning? Do you need to embrace Jesus Christ? He's saying this, depart from your sin, cease from your sin, turn to God today. I want to implore you as Peter does to, to, to repent so that your sins can be refreshed be forgiven so that you can have times of refreshment. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Peter doesn't mince words at all. He's very clear. Very clear. We need to repent. We need to turn back. And we thank you for that opportunity that's given to us even this morning to do that. And Lord, I, I pray that that would be the heartbeat of our church. To seek repentance. To turn back to you. Knowing that there are times of refreshment that can come upon us. It's waiting for us. In Jesus' name, amen.